Welcome to season two of the Lean Startup Company podcast series. I'm Heather McGough, co-founder of Lean Startup Company, where we share lean startup and modern management techniques to a growing community of entrepreneurs and corporate innovators. We produce webcasts, podcasts, original content, our annual Lean Startup Conference, and offer live and virtual training in the enterprise. Whether you're building a high growth tech startup, a mobile app, a piece of hardware, working in a nonprofit or large bureaucratic organization, adopting lean startup methodology can help support continuous innovation and sustainable growth. Today's guest is Raheem Adatia. I was recently introduced to Raheem by a friend and customer of Lean Startup Company. Raheem's what you might call a mobile guy, but a mobile guy who understands the value chain. He's a product manager with over 15 years of experience in both mobile and enterprise. Most recently, Raheem led product management of the mobile platforms at PayPal. Prior to that, he led product management for Yahoo's mobile platform. At the time, the third largest mobile platform in the world spread across 70 different markets. Raheem's experience has been with both early stage startups as well as with global Fortune 500 companies. Working with both end consumer products as well as with platform products giving him a broad perspective of the challenges faced in product management at various stages of product and company growth. In the 90s, he launched a mobile middleware tech startup, then went on to join T-Mobile International and later joined reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan. Raheem began his career as a software engineer, developing large-scale enterprise systems for Charles Schwab, Nortel, and Williams Communications and has been recognized through co-authored books on enterprise architectures and development. Hey, Raheem, welcome to the show. Thank you, Heather. Great to be part of this. So here we are on a sunny afternoon in downtown San Francisco, sitting on the top floor of WeWork. Great space. Yep. And you and I met a couple months ago at a happy hour. (laughs) Yes, yeah. And we, it was an easy conversation. You remember why? Uh, yeah, there's a few reasons why. We, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, we uh, had some great, I think, uh, uh, option on the table. Like tequila? There you go, yeah. <laughs> Good friends and tequila. Um, so you just uh, got back from a, an a adventure around the world. I'd love to hear yeah. a little bit about it. Yeah, um, went traveling actually uh, for the last, well not last eight months anymore because I've been back for two months, but we went traveling for eight months. Um, my fiance and I picked up two around the world tickets that uh, took us to uh, Europe, uh, so Spain, Italy, France, went to Northern Africa, Tunisia, Egypt, and uh, East Africa to Ethiopia. Uh, then we made our way, made our way into uh, Asia, so we started off in India for six weeks. Southeast Asia, so Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Burma, um, and then into Beijing and Seoul, and then back to Hawaii, which wasn't a bad ending spot, but oh, that's a great nice. thing. Yeah. Well, now everybody knows who to contact for uh, travel advice. Yeah, we actually had a great little blog that we actually had. And, you know, it was the best day, I think, was when we had a referral of $25 from Uber and $30 from Airbnb. We made $55 in one day. We were all <laughs> jumping for joy that day in the beaches of Thailand. <laughs> oh, nice. All right. Well, I'll be coming to you for advice. Um, but let's get down to business now. Uh, sure. 
I get the opportunity to speak to a lot of folks from established enterprises about their challenges. And many of them get the lean startup approach, but then have difficulty in trying to make transformations. Um, and in, in talking to you, it seems like you've really been able to pinpoint what companies are doing right and the things they need to work on. So first, I guess I would love for you to tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I'm not quite sure if I've actually necessarily pinpointed what company you're doing, right? I've seen something, some in the companies I've worked in. Um, and so I'll try to impart some of those uh, ideas. Um, but yeah, about my background, um, first and foremost, uh, I'm an engineer turned product guy. Um, and I've been working in mobile in some form for over 15 years now. Um, so back in 2000s when I actually started. I started out in computer engineering, working for some of the old guard, Nortel Networks and Corel, and then back in 97 for one of the first high-flying startups in Toronto, uh, the Bulldog Group, um, and they're actually part of the EMC. Uh, in those early days, I think I was uh, unsure about my career, what I wanted to do, and it was the first dot-com boom, which was already underway, and I didn't want to be in San Francisco, in the Silicon Valley, because it was a bit crazy, and so I took a role with a startup based in the UK, and as fate would have it, uh, one of the primary projects was back here in San Francisco with Charles Schwab, helping them with their international trading system. And so I was back in San Francisco anyways. Uh, but it gave me great uh, opportunities to actually learn about how to build a product in a very customer-centric way. Um, in the next, uh, the next five years, I spent time in the UK launching my own business in the mobile middleware space, working with T-Mobile through that first mobile boom. Uh, before taking opportunities to work across Central Asia and Africa, working with the UN and other NGOs. And then in 2010, I was recruited by Yahoo for their mobile team and relocated back to the Bay Area. So long before Yahoo and PayPal, you spent some time working in the European market. And for a time, uh, you mentioned in Afghanistan. Tell me about uh, what you were doing there and how you were able to practice lean startup methods in your work during that time. Sure. Um, well, in 2003, I had an opportunity to join into the reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan uh, and took a role with Roshan, a new mobile operator in Afghanistan. At that time, most developing emerging markets were still deploying mobile services with business models based on going only for the wealthy class. And Roshan came into the Afghan market with the express goal of going after the masses. So there was a whole host of new customer pain points that had to be thought through. So, for example, you know, the price points of scratch cards, uh, explaining the product to new mobile users, understanding new use cases. Um, it seems obvious, by the, uh, um, but the reason why people with dis disposable income use a mobile phone are vastly different than the reasons those who are far more concerned with dollars and cents would use the phone. So, we, uh, you know, we had to think through all that. We also had to think through the logistics and even rollout plans. You know, launching a mobile operator is capital intensive, and so the leadership was thinking through how to launch in areas which, once a product is launched, the cash flow from those initial users could help to fund the role of the product in other areas. So, to understand all of this, we set out, you know, to understand the user. Many of the methods we used today would be considered lean startup. Um, it wasn't always uh, obviously that term then, but uh, that what we're doing today would be called lean startup. I think. Uh, so, you know. Focus groups, but not really like traditional focus groups, very much more about speaking with the customer, watching them, seeing what they're doing. 
So we had a flagship store in Kabul, and as well as we had partner franchises across the market. We spent time in the stores, like listening to the customers, listening to the sales staff, even listening to the agents who were accepting payments, uh, and watching them and seeing where their pain points were. Uh, one of the things we learned, the customer base was very savvy. They already understood price points in comparison to alternate options, such as a satellite phone or even just uh, landlines. Um, they, they, they were already doing the calculations of bulk versus retail. So the population is very bright. However, they didn't necessarily have experience with mobile phones specifically, and so many customers did not realize that the phone had to be charged before first use, for example. Um, or in certain regions where electricity was not available, we had to think through working with partners to build charging stations. We didn't realize that until we talked to them and realized why weren't they buying it, and realized, oh, because they were worried about charging it in their home. And so we started partnering with people on charging stations. Um, and so we had to understand the entire customer journey, not just in terms of this is phone when they turn it on work, what is that entire journey? Um, and so I think one of the things, the example is like, that we did was what today, I think Paul Graham calls uh, things that do not scale, right? So when the network initially launched, we did a lot of the initialization of the phone after sale, we did it manually. Literally at night, someone would be manually typing in the numbers of the phones that were sold that day, and then the next day, the phone will actually work. So initially, as the business is going, you know, that works. There's a lot of manual errors, but we were having to change things constantly to see what actually worked when selling and how did that customers want it, what are the sales agents doing, and things like that. And so it manually is what we needed to do. But once we got it all working and we knew the logistics, how it should work, then we started to invest into automated tools and like billing systems and things like that. So uh, during the whole process, we didn't just look at how end users were going to use the phones. We also looked at how uh, all the users uh, would, you know, would be using it. So all the different touch points of the sales and management of that uh, phone as well as customer care, etc. I think that one of the um, uh, biggest things we learned, or actually benefits we had, I think the company constantly got kudos back for, and actually I didn't really have much involvement on this part, was the customer care side. So the company actually at a certain point decided customer care is really important here uh, and we use it as inputs to understand but that was one thing that we really found to be really important in the market which I don't think initially we necessarily would have thought to do. Hmm. Um, so, so before we get into talking about what you've learned companies are getting right or not, tell me why talking about this stuff is exciting for you. You'd mentioned product management and trying to increase transparency around lessons people can learn. Why do you see this as being so important? So I think it's actually a really exciting time for building products uh, and for product management in general. There's like a lot, obviously, a lot of great companies being funded. I think uh, you know every week you're seeing a new reference to it on a TV show, and everyone's talking about it. Everyone knows what's going on, uh, but at the same time, competition is fierce, right? So there's more and more pressure for companies to up their game and really succeed and really get past that first initial seed funding or Series A, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, initial funding might be there, but then you got to really start proving your model. And companies are proving, certain companies are proving it. The, the models are working. So they need to not only solve real customer needs, but they also need to do so in delightful ways to stand out. And they need to be able to uh, withstand constantly evolving user behaviors and changing business demands you know, initially you think a certain thing's going to work one way and it turns out to work another way in another few months because as users become more savvy and change things. I think in my early years, um, 
Well, no, I think in my early years. I was in my early years. I was an engineer or architect. Um, and I used to be in the camp that an engineering manager could lead a product. Um, you know, they talk to users and customers, and along with the team, they write and prioritize user stories. Over the years, I've slowly moved more to product management as a job function itself, and more in the camp that product managers is a job function of its own. Engineers really are not the best suited to do it. Um, and product, man product, product managers just do a lot more than just prioritize stories, right? A, a great product manager can balance between not only the strategy and prioritization, but also between the analytics and you know drawing insights from those analytics. Uh, they can jump to design and really understand it. They can go to execution. Uh, and most importantly here in the Bay Area, they, they understand the technology and the real meaning uh, of uh, technology decisions. And they have to be able to understand all these different perspectives and hold their own uh, in all those areas in order to withstand the competition. Um, so I think, you know, right now what's really exciting is that we're getting to that tipping point where industry is realizing that you need to have a strong focus on PM uh, from the get-go in order to really succeed. Um, there are a lot more, uh, more people who are trying to contribute back to the community now, um, and that's increasing transparency, and more and more people want to share lessons than others, uh, share, uh, share uh, lessons to others, and that's a really exciting time now because it's really becoming its own discipline in itself. So in 2010, you started with Yahoo to lead product management for mobile platforms. What were some of the challenges of applying lean startup principles in a larger organization like Yahoo? So it's definitely different to apply principles in a larger org versus uh, within a startup. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm advising a lot of startup companies as well, so I see it on that perspective still right now. Um, however, it's definitely possible in large orgs, um, especially somewhere like Yahoo. Yahoo has a very strong entrepreneurial spirit, um, and there there's an openness in that company to constantly improve and actually learn new uh, capabilities. So when I came into Yahoo. We didn't have a mobile platform per se. Uh, we had a lot of infrastructure and APIs, but it wasn't what I would say was a pro uh, was productized in that the development was not managed as a product. Um, the muscles of discovering the customer need was not honed, um, and the metrics and analytics were not incorporated to inform new feature development on the on the platform side. Um, a lot of pieces were there, but it just wasn't cohesive. So we set out to uh, change that. We started to really understand the customer. So if you think about it, when you have a platform as a product, you have lots of different users that you have to solve for. You have end users, you have the developers, both internal and external, who want not just APIs, but you know sandboxes and emulators and examples they can work from. You have marketing managers who want reports, and you, uh, you have customer care agents who want to be able to look into customer usage. And then you have like BD and account managers who want to be able to see how partnerships are working and performing and help uh, give you better feedback on what they think your product should be next. And like, the list just keeps going on, uh, like depending on the size and nature of your actual company, what domain you're in. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the, the key that we had was actually really focusing on what the need is rather than the ask. And that comes to everything. We hear it all the time. It's a little bit, you know, uh, kind of a stale to hear maybe, but it's, it can't be emphasized enough to really understand what the need is rather than just delivering the ask. And so, for example, we initially focused on product execution. And we put a lot of emphasis on continuous, uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery. 
but at the same time, we put the brakes on when products could be launched. So there's an naive view that because you have CI and CD, they can launch every day or even multiple times a day, and that will take you to market uh, product market fit. It doesn't. It actually, you know, you can still be launching crappy stuff, but just more often. So what we wanted to do is we uh, we didn't want to allow our team to think that because they have the ability to launch every day, that they should. You know, that simply allows them to skimp on the work to analyze and validate the MVPs and prototypes with the hope that you'll launch something and be successful. So prior to putting the brakes on and only planning for bi-weekly launches, we were constantly reacting to asks and requests coming in from the various teams using our products. And we weren't really doing a lot of thought and thinking into what is the actual value we're taking to the market and why are they asking for these things and what are they really trying to do. So that didn't just come down to like delivering a report that asked for it. And we're like, oh, well, there's actually probably a better way we could have actually let them know what they were looking for. Um, you know, they would make those reports sometimes and they would actually do all this analysis on it on, the other, on their side. And we're like, oh, well, we actually probably could have actually done that much easier for you. And so when we started digging into that, it became better. Um, and so we were basically, you know, I think the fundamental rule that we're just breaking, you know, delivering what the customers were asking rather than what they really need. Um, one of the key things we did there, we increased the transparency, communication, collaboration tools, which allowed us to become more stable and flexible. People were able to, man they actually really liked that we were actually bi-weekly rather than an on-demand kind of delivery service for them. Um, and, and part of that actually, one of the things that actually really helped us think about that was Blake Irving uh, was our chief product officer at the time and he came to Yahoo advocating for learning to celebrate outcomes, not launches. And I think that's very kind of uh, in line with lean startup as well. That, you know, you want to launch, you want to ra launch rapidly and iteratively. Um, you don't necessarily celebrate every single one of those. What you want to celebrate is when you actually reach a milestone, you get to an outcome. And so when Blake brought this to the company, it m made us think a little more around like a holistic view of giving ourselves time to learn, validate, and iterate to get to the desired income. You know, focusing on all the many things outside of just launching to deliver value to the market. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, going back to a little now in the larger companies, some of the issues we have, you know, you actually have a lot of strengths in a larger company, which uh, help lean startup, right? So one of the things we actually did, which we really helped us, was we started engaging with our customer care agents. Not only sitting with them to like hear customer complaints, but to build out a partnership with them so that they were asking the right questions, that so we had additional inputs for future product roadmaps. And they would really dig into that. They wouldn't just solve the problem for them either. They would, you know, solve the problem obviously for the customer, but they would ask a few different questions around that. And I always find it like amazing when companies treat customer care like an outsource function rather than an incredible opportunity to connect with customers. If you think about large companies, they have such incredible touch points with users, especially in the mobile in mobile companies, because even their own users and or employees are uh, users, yeah. and they don't often talk to them. They kind of treat it like an outsourced function, and they think that oh, let's just go on the street and talk to people only, where rather than saying you can talk to users everywhere. Um, and so they definitely actually were able to kind of overcome that. And I think uh, large companies in general are kind of rethinking that. And, and so one of the biggest hurdles that I think large companies will still get, have to get over is that it's not only their end consumer products that can benefit from the lean startup principles. There's many parts of the organization in general, such as you know their platforms, which are, many are becoming like SaaS models, 
their own HR systems, their customer care services. All of these things can benefit from lean startup thinking. Um, at PayPal, we had a team uh, called Customer Driven Innovation, which was led by Hisham Ibrahim. Um, and he was introducing many of these into all facets of the company. I think we even use it for the shuttle services, I think, to figure out what is the need on the shuttle services. So I think that there are definitely a lot of companies that are actually bringing these principles in. Um, they just really need to start thinking about it holistically, I think, is the main hurdle they have to get over. Yeah, agreed. Uh, recently, you were talking about the online world and the offline world colliding. What companies do you think are doing interesting stuff right now and, and why? There's actually a lot of cool companies doing some great things right now. And that's part of also where, you know, earlier asking why I'm excited about product management, I think we're going through this phase, like you're saying, where online world and the offline world are colliding. And like it's, we're getting to a point where it's no longer like you have an online world and you have an offline world and you're two different people. We're getting to a point where those are merging. I think, you know, one of the companies that are actually doing a great job on this is uh, uh, Warby Parker. You know, they're a great example. Um, they're really cool because of how they evolved. They started, you know, in 2010, I think it is, they started with the intent to remove the middleman. They basically they said they want to get rid of the middleman. They want to go directly to their customers. And they designed and marketed their glasses on the, on the web, sold directly to the consumer, and eliminated the cost of retail stores. Consumers had like all the benefits of not having to go to a store, manage the purchase. I don't know if um, you know, you've ever seen when people go buy glasses, etc. It's actually kind of, sure, the trying on part is great, but then you actually have this whole process of signing all the papers and doing all this stuff, which is, is painful. They had to find your old information, all that kind of stuff. And so they got rid of all of that, uh, and they made it easier to manage repeat purchases. Um, the whole process was simpler. And they were hugely successful. I think, um, if I'm correct with the numbers, I think they shipped like over 100,000 pairs of glasses in the first year. Um, but then they also evolved, right? They kept listening to their customers, understood, okay, well, there's still something missing, I guess, here. Or as the world is getting now, again, merging of two worlds. And they actually started to open retail stores in 2013, in 2014. Um, they realized they can get the best of both by embracing the idea of like, Rather than a retail store there to actually sell you something, a retail presence there is to show you something. People want to come in, they want to try the glasses, they want to hear from somebody what it feel, what it, you know, like what they think of them. They'll take a friend in, that kind of stuff. So they figured all that out like the retail showroom, but then the overall fulfillment, management, and the long-term customer engagement still happens online. And you know, if you're you wear contacts, they can send you those contacts afterwards. You want the comfort of maybe going in to physically sit with someone to let them measure you, but you know after that they can send it to you. Um, and so if you look at the service now, it doesn't feel disjointed. You, you don't go into the store and feel like the person doesn't have access to your history and doesn't treat you as though they don't want you want to lose uh, you as a customer in the store because they're worried about someone online getting your sales commission or something like that. They thought through the entire kind of process of that and it feels like a very great experience if you ever go uh, try that out. Mm -hmm. right. Have you had a chance ever to go in? Do you wear glasses actually? Uh, nope, I'm contact gal, so. Contacts? <laughs> <laughs> you should try them off with the contacts and see what they say. You know, I, I should. I, yeah. <laughs> I would be stylish. I, I'm not the, a very stylish person here in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's a great experience. On the, the contacts especially because they do that kind of repeat kind of sending you of the, if you wear disposables or things like that, they actually do a great job on that. Um, 
So uh, actually, you're taking other examples. Let me see. Let me think about that. Uh, Rebecca Minkoff is uh, is another one. She's a designer from New York who has been working with uh, eBay Innovation Labs to introduce technology to the overall sales process of selling items in their stores. So they have one here in San Francisco. They have a really great one in New York. I, I'm not quite sure if they have other ones, but they're, they're really kind of merging those two worlds. And like it might seem like a bit gimmicky to have touch screens, you know, where you go in and you know you uh, click on the touch screen to say you like coffee or you know a glass of champagne or something like that, um, and then you can like choose a lighting for when you're trying on clothes. But it's actually quite smart if you think about it, because it's actually getting to learn much more about the consumer and understanding what they want and what they like and don't like. And then also when you know they, they have little things like when you bring an item into the change room, you can automatically like notify and say, oh, I need a different size. And so you're not now running outside trying to find a salesperson to help you with that. They automatically come to you and they say, oh, okay, we'll bring you something else. And you know, it improves the whole process there. Um, and so they, get, they, got, they got rid of a lot of the friction. Um, but then also because they're learning so much, so much from you, it also informs their future product direction. They start to say, oh, well, we need some colors that people are asking for. We can think about that. Or perhaps actually we're seeing that, oh, we, well, handbags are you know, a little more uh, in uh, demand right now for whatever reason they, they are or whatever different pieces they have. So that actually helps them to kind of cater for future uh, sales. And so it's not necessarily that, um, you know, like it's starting from the online world going offline. You're seeing the offline kind of going into the online as well. And because you can actually not start thinking about it and say it's not much of a stretch to start thinking, you know, how can they close abandoned sales? Can they actually potentially send you something at home after and say, hey, you know, that item you're looking at is now on sale or vice versa. An item you're looking on online, when you come into the store, they can come bring it to you inside the change rooms, etc. Um, and for that, you know, there's obviously a lot of issues to think through, such as privacy and consistent payments and all that kind of stuff. But if they're building these products flexible enough and with uh, and taking in the insights, I think that they will get those user behaviors correct. Um, and you know, the, I think the key thing is that they have to make value and learning an ingrained part of the product development culture. Um, but they're definitely doing some very exciting things right now. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, this came up last time we were talking. I'm big on utilizing the latest on-demand services, especially because. We're such guinea pigs for them here in San Francisco. Sure. Uh, yeah. My own parents who live in Indiana describe me as out there, and maybe I am, but they you know, hear about how I operate every day using on-demand services, whether it's Uber or Lyft for a ride, Instacart for grocery delivery, TaskRabbit to build a dresser, Zeal for in-home massage, Sprig for healthy dinners, or Saucy for on-demand alcohol. I'm addicted. Maybe that wasn't the best thing to say. Um, I'm addicted to on-demand yeah, yeah. services. <laughs> Many of these uh, services, they quickly move from small to big, and they, they have to continue to learn from customers and test ideas. Can you tell me a little bit about how they do this in the real world? First of all, yeah, it, it, it definitely can feel like we're in a bit of an alternate universe here in the Bay Area compared to other cities or uh, in different uh, parts of the world. But what is exciting is that the speed at which is changing. It's really cool to see, you know, services that actually started here, like Uber, and how it's naturally moving into other cities that perhaps just two years ago didn't seem to make sense over there. You know, so for example, like 
You know, I, mean, I recall explaining Sprig to a friend just a few months ago, and they didn't get it. But I wouldn't be surprised in a little while that it is actually in some of those cities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it is changing very quickly. I haven't heard of Saucy before, but yeah, I did have to check it out. Um, so you know, I definitely think that like, on-demand services are the future in many industries. So you know, it, how they're actually doing this, they're actually adopting what is called, you know, probably what we call lean principles, right? So Uber and Lyft are interesting in that they are constantly evolving to maintain product market fit. So Uber is famous for some of the hands-on method that they use. I don't know if you've heard of some of these things. So initially to gauge interest from uh, uh, from town car operators, they literally called the drivers directly. Hmm. They didn't build out the super complex software system initially or make sure it actually, you know, when they were building that it actually met every single need, you know, and everything was automated, they actually literally were just calling them. And they still do this, you know, as user behavior change, they adapt, they learn from that. and. They're, I'm sure they're doing a lot of manual things and talking to people, and then they also do a lot of automated things as well. Um, you know, and they sometimes are the ones that lead user behavior changes, and sometimes they're the ones who actually, you know, do change it. Right. So um, I give you an example: is like, you remember the first time you used an Uber, right? Oh yeah. It, it felt a bit odd to not have to pay and just step out of the car. Um, and just walk away. I know, know, I think I was handing him cash, and he's like, no, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, right? just go. <laughs> and still, the tip, it still feels sometimes, you know, a little bit odd, you don't do it, right? And they, but they've actually now got to the point where they've actually made that the new norm, right? It actually now, for me, it feels odd to do it the old way now. When, I, when I'm getting out of a uh, traditional cab, and I have to pay, or I have to pull out a credit card, and do something, it just, the whole experience feels so odd for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they go into these new markets, they don't just make a quick copy of what worked in San Francisco. They do adapt it a little bit more to that market and the nuances of that, how the cab system works and things like that. Um, and, you know, for all on-demands, I'm sure they're, they're doing that. Um, so, you know, this is where when you're doing that, all these other things which make you more efficient come into play. You know, your actual delivery cycles, your actual prototyping. And can you still do that when you're a larger company? And the, the, the successful companies are still doing that, right? So I think if you look at it, you say, you know, is your product, for example, one, one way to look at it is, is your product developed enough to allow you to focus on your core competency and to use partners for other services, right? Uh, for example, do you want to use the same payment provider for every country? Um, is your product developed in such a way that you can iterate and change uh, uh, processors? Can you understand the metrics to extract insights that make sense in a particular market? Um, there, there's a multitude of things. You know, the analytics service might be different. Your mapping services might be different, things like that. And in the current crop of startups that are really succeeding, they're not just using lean startups when they first get going, but they're using them as they scale to massive growth as well. So let's talk about two things many Americans love. McDonald's and Walmart. (laughs) Recently you mentioned that Walmart has figured out that the masses don't shop like tech-forward folks do right now, yet somehow are converting them into the on-demand space. Tell me about that. So yeah, I mean, they've made some initial kind of moves into that. I think, you know, if you go out of the Uber scenario, you know, while it might seem like it's ubiquitous, it really is still in a very set demographic, right? It's those who first of all have a smartphone and are using them for more than just the basics, uh, as well those who take taxis rather than just using other means of transportation. And so 
you know, it's not everybody. Even everybody has a smartphone. A lot of them don't take taxi many places. They have their own car or whatever it might be, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this isn't necessarily the same demographic as those going to McDonald's and Walmart. So, you know, their, their demographics are much more skewed and, like, much more uh, heterogeneous. Um, their expectations are different. And so the expectations of those users, are, you know, are also going to be very different. So in addition to uh, those users, while they may have similar amounts of disposable income, they're not as tech forward as Uber users currently are. So how does that uh, kind of work? Like how do payments work? You know, are they using the same credit card? Do they all have PayPal accounts, for example? Like a lot of people on Uber are just using PayPal or scanning their credit cards, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How will they do at McDonald's and Walmart? Will they really feel comfortable not signing, signing or confirming a payment somehow? Like in the case of Uber, when you just step out of the car, like does that still feel the same when you, you know, purchase a thousand dollar TV? Do you just walk out and put it in your car and then drive away? And how, you know, how's that gonna work? So I think Walmart, though, is doing like, some really cool things in this space and understanding the customer, understanding those overall flows, and really making sure that it's customer-centric to help design that shopping experience better. Mm -hmm. Another company that I've been working with lately is Rover, which is looking at proximity-based services using beacons. They help companies determine where users are in a venue and not only allow you to target that user, but just as importantly, allow you to gather data and understand what is working to engage with those customers and what isn't. And so all these companies are looking at people like them to say, well, yes, how do we really measure this? And how do we do it on a scale of very, very different users as opposed to just going after one demographic, right? Um, for customers like McDonald's, you know, sorry, companies like McDonald's, you know, knowing exactly where your customers are, it's important to maintain consistency that they want. They don't want to let, your, let you order ahead and then not be able to make sure your food is fresh when you get there. They don't want it sitting on the heat lamp. And so these guys are all kind of iterating through these kind of ideas of proximity, payment services, uh, what is your actual transportation services, all that type of thing. So Raheem, we're running out of time, but one last question. Uh, last time we talked, you said that you envision that in the next four to five years, there will be uh, university degrees and product management, yeah. um, even specifically for consumer software and more. T tell me more about that. So I think we're getting to the stage now, like I said earlier, like a tipping point where, you know, people are really understanding the value of product management, but at the same time, there's simply just too much difference within companies about what product management does. So it's easy in today's market where VC money's flush and the economy is doing well for companies to think that engineering can do product management or that program management can do uh, product management. However, there's always going to be leaner times, right? And those, and then there's going to be a need for organization to be more efficient. So, for example, large, large organizations are desperately trying to transform from outdated waterfall models to newer agile models um, and to become more user-centric. But the reality is that those things are simply what they need to do currently, and that's what the need is now for those companies. The areas that will need to be addressed in the future will be different, and in different other areas. So there's actually a great post on Quora by Dan Schmidt, who runs a site called Product Logic, where he talks about the primary purpose of a product, of a product manager. So one of the purposes, he says, is to fill the white space between users development and the business. The skills required to do this is very much in line with leadership development. It's more, much more about soft leadership, ability to understand organization and culture development, 
the ability to make calculated predictions of where the market is going uh, constantly, uh, going to constantly maintain product market fit. And we're already starting to see new courses being introduced. And in fact, I'm working with uh, two universities currently developing dedicated classes, uh, which address this. The content of, uh, addressing the content software or maybe more broadly technology product development. The initial classes on product managers that we are seeing have been focused more on consumer software, but we're starting to see more and more demand for this in terms of broader technology. How do you address product management in a consistent manner across companies so that the interdependencies actually work well and so you can actually now take the discipline from company to company. You can do this with engineering managers right now, you can do this with program managers right now. Product managers, not so much because it's a little bit different every single company. Yeah. Well, Raheem, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, I, I know you have your next adventure ahead of you, and uh, we should check in in another six months. To that would see be great. How that goes. Uh, do you want to leave the listeners with some contact information so that everyone in the world can reach out to you? Sure. Um, you know, you can get a hold of me on LinkedIn, and I have my Twitter account at funkstop.com. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, feel free to reach out. I always like to uh, chat to people about product management. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks to our guest, Raheem Adatia. I'm Heather McGough from Lean Startup Company. Our team looks forward to having you join us for upcoming podcasts and webcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lean Startup or register for our flagship Lean Startup Conference and follow our blog. Visit leanstartup.co for more information.